self-care is the biggest undiscovered, unexamined question in all of psychology. We all think we know what it is. We don't, and we haven't talked about it enough, and we haven't explored it enough. Hello, hello. So usually I'd say, yeah, skip over this intro, who cares about it? But because it gives important context and definitions for this episode, which if you don't hear, you might just be entirely confused, I'd really recommend hearing this out till the end. Yay. Okay. So today we're joined by the incredible Dr. Sia, who's a registered psychotherapist and researcher, and also has a YouTube channel covering many, many useful topics. In this episode, we're discussing the lies that we actually believe around self-worth and self-care and relating that back to evolutionary psychology and explaining why we are the way we are. Of course, also linking that back with education and themes of Ready to Redo. This episode is based off psychodynamic psychotherapy. Yes, that is a mouthful. And specifically, (laughs) get ready for this one, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy or ISTDP for short. Yes, they really don't make it easy for us. So these concepts use what we call attachment theories, where our relationships with parents and caregivers as babies affect how we are today and affecting things like self-worth and self-criticism. So after this beautiful intro music, Sia will be explaining two things. First of all, what is attachment and examples of it, since we'll need that to explain things like self-worth. And then what are the four types of attachment styles? And maybe you can even guess which one you are. So without further ado, let's jump into it. When babies are born, they must attach to their parents, meaning they must kind of find a way to um, get in with the parents and work with the parents and function with the parents, because otherwise the baby dies. And the baby also has to find a way to reduce the distance between themselves and their mother, their father, their caregivers, because a baby who does not have a parental figure close is at risk of dying. It's as simple as that. So you can just imagine a baby who has mom and dad very close to them, less likely to die from cold, less likely to die from heart starvation, less likely to die from disease, less likely to die from a bear attack, whatever you will. So attachment is the process by which a baby, uh, a child, will ensure that their distance between themselves and the parents is reduced, such that the parent is willing to bond to them, meaning that the parent is willing to come close to them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the, it's the simplest. It's the simplest form. It's, it's the most basic form. That's what attachment is. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the child's way of reducing distance between themselves and their parents, um, and that's it. And what ways? Just for example, what ways would they? Um, what actions would they do to minimize that distance? For example, the child might cry, because when the child cries, the parent comes closer to soothe the baby's cry. Mm-hmm. The child might giggle and coo because then the parent feels like it would be nice, a good experience, a funny experience to come closer to the child. Right. And if they were to, yeah, and if they were to have that action and it wouldn't elicit a response in the, in the parent, they might change tracks and, and do something else. Is that right? That's exactly right. So a child might cry and notice that when they cry, in fact, the parent doesn't come closer. Instead, what the parent does is starts crying in the wrong corner, far away. When I get overwhelmed, my mom gets overwhelmed. My dad gets overwhelmed. Hmm. 
this is not a good strategy. I got to change tack. Right. And then we see how that manifests into <laughs> basically the rest of our conversation today. Uh, could you just give a brief uh, description of secure attachment, but then also the other three attachments that we see? So with a securely attached child, they are able to successfully gain attention from their parents uh, for positive things that they do and uh, aversive experiences that they have. Meaning, when they cry, the parent comes and they soothe them. When they're happy and they're cooing, the parent comes and they join in. What happens then is that over time, the person feels secure within themselves. Two, one, help themselves when they are distressed. Be compassionate to themselves. Be caring towards themselves. Think the way that would be helpful for them to think. Do what would be helpful for themselves to do. Feel whatever they feel and put that within the context in a helpful way for themselves. Mm -hmm. It's called auto-regulation or autonomous regulation or self-regulation. They also have had such pleasant experiences that they can also go to other people when they need. They can be cared for by somebody else. They can experience the genuine compassion of another person. They can receive the love the care, the friendship, the compliments, and so on and so forth for other people. So there's no idea like, oh, if I go to other people, I'm weak or something like that, or I need to just take care of myself. They are good at, because of this, because of the parent, because the parent helps the child whenever they need to be soothed and helps them actually kind of thrive on their own, the child becomes good at knowing what would solve a problem. I use that example again of my son there where he spilled the milk. He says, hmm, that didn't work. Let's try again. Meaning that he kind of identified what didn't work. It was the behavior that didn't work. It was the action that didn't work. And he immediately goes to what else could work. So it's a process of you kind of are more likely when you're securely attached to go towards what works, what helps, what changes things for the better than when you're anxiously attached in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have an avoidant attachment, you believe that no one else can help you, no one else can do anything for you, you have to be able to do it all by yourself. And of course, we cannot because we are group animals, we are group creatures. So it becomes kind of almost like a defense of omnipotence where you kind of believe that you have to be God or and no, one's, and no one has to have any form of influence on you in your life. When you're ambivalent, you believe that you can't do any of it yourself and you are completely dependent on somebody else to do it for you. I can't do anything for me. I can't regulate me. I can't take care of me. I can only you can, you know, you and, and you do more for me. Can you be there for me? Why are you never there for me? So on and so forth. And when you're disorganized, you don't have a reliable pattern. Your pattern is disorganized. It's chaotic. That's for those parents who were just completely unreliable. They were extremely unwell. They would come home. They would be happy with you one day when you build those blocks. And then the next moment, they're really upset with you. Why did you touch those blocks? There was just no predictable pattern for those children. So there's no predictable pattern for them in life. Right. And you definitely go more into detail about those in your YouTube channel anyway. So anyone who's just been a bit, <laughs> just resonated with them a bit much, um, definitely check out your work.
So hopefully that was useful. And since these definitions about attachment were actually later in the episode, but I've edited it in first to give context, here is a relatively smooth segue into the real start of the episode. Hope you enjoy. Let's jump into it because this is going to be quite fun. I thought we'd start with um, a scenario first. And this one starts with Janice. So Janice is studying high school online because of COVID lockdowns. We actually recently just got out, so (laughs) yes. Sadly, I was too optimistic and Melbourne is back into lockdown. So stop celebrating, Joe. The teacher sets the class homework, which she is very, very unmotivated to do. Her friends seem to be on top of the study, whereas she just spends most days distracted by social media, like TikTok, Instagram. And they also ask her, what have you been up to recently? Or have you been up to much? And she feels so ashamed because she just hasn't done much at all. Everyone's studying and doing things but me. I'm so worthless, she thinks. So that's just the very common situation that, you know, I started to brainstorm. And I've heard students say this quite often. And I've fallen into the trap too. I still do, actually. Uh, And I'm hoping for you to use this situation and explain the idea of self-worth and and conditional self-worth as well. Um, so, So what's going on with Janice? Well, I mean, look, if you look at it from a detachment perspective, well, what happens there is some children from a very young age, um, and, I'm, and I'm talking about the first kind of two, three, four years of life, even up to kind of the first five, six, seven tops years of life, will have a, a persistent and consistent um, experience that when they are in a particular way, their parents are more likely to come to them and less likely to distance themselves away from them. Now that particular way that they can be differs between different uh, uh, households, different family dynamics. And so you can kind of end up feeling relatively secure, meaning that your parents come to you almost in a way irrespective of what you're like, uh, that they go away not on the basis of what you're like, but that them being with you and not being with you has really no, nothing to do with your attitude or your beliefs or, or what your needs or your requirements or whether you're funny or not. Like It's more like they're there for you unconditionally. They're just close to you. And when they're not, it's not about you. It's about work. It's about something else. It's about whatever else. Now, when you get a sense that you're worthless, It's this idea that there are particular ways that you can be as a person that has no worth to your caregivers. If you are naughty, if you are not successful, if you're not getting the piano right, if you're not, if you're yelling too much, if you're screaming too much, if you're too naggy, if you're not getting your studies just right, if you didn't clean the table exactly the way that it needed to be cleaned and so on and so forth. And, so what happens is that over time, the child develops an idea that, wait a second, there must be something going on with my basic kind of worth as a human being. Because it seems like they're, I'm not just accepted irrespective of what I'm like. Like, it's not like, honey, I love you, but clean the table. 
It's more like you didn't clean the table, go to your room. We don't want to see you again until you've understood how wrong it is what you have done, such that when you understand, then you have the worth, the value, the lovability required to again be in our presence. And just one another example. So, and, and the child cannot in any way, no children can, distance themselves between what's going on for them and what's going on for their parent. They can't say, I think my dad is a harsh, critical, overly narcissistic man. The child can't do that. So by their very essence, what they'll do, whatever their parents are like, you can take the two most harsh, critical, nasty, and abusive people in the world, make them this child's parent, and the child will have no idea. They will think, my parents are perfect. Mm -hmm. My parents are perfect. Anything and everything wrong in our dynamic, in our relationship, is about me. <clears throat> Fast forward, now this worthlessness is within, what was the name of the, what was, that, what was her name? Janice. In Janice. Yes. Now this worthlessness sits within Janice. And it's on the basis of this worthlessness that she does not do one thing or another. So it's not these things that she doesn't do that make her feel worthless. She doesn't do them because she already believes herself to be worthless. And when you're worthless, when your human worth is extremely low, you come up with a series of ways to make up for that by being a better student, by being uh, funnier, by being prettier, by being more organized, by being less of a burden, by being more successful, whatever else it is. And when you can't imagine being able to do any of those things, when you can't imagine that any of those things are going to compensate appropriately for your worthlessness, and when you also can't imagine that any of those things are going to um, be examples of how you can, uh, or, and if, if you can imagine that doing those things is just going to make you feel even more worthless, then you just don't. Once you've had that attachment there, um, and, and those ideas developing around the idea of worthlessness, anything and everything that you do is mostly just focused on perpetuating that feeling of worthlessness. The brain doesn't have a self-corrective auto, like um, uh, automatic process where it goes, used to think we're worthless, let's not think that anymore. It doesn't do that automatically. In fact, what the brain does is goes, was worthless at some point in time. Now let's keep it like that for the rest of your life, unless you do something about it. Right. And so the idea of Janice thinking that she needs to do things when you were say perpetuating. So if she already has that idea that she's worthless in some way, then by the very nature of trying to do something like, does that amplify her idea of, she, she's trying to improve herself, but at the same time, it's not actually targeting the real reason of that's you know, exactly self-worth. Right. That's, that's mm. the key there. It, it's not that it amplifies or that it minimizes. It actually just doesn't touch the subject. Mm. Right. It covers the subject up. It covers up the worthlessness. That's all it does. Um, that's why you can have a person who is world number one in tennis and still feel worthless. Right? Most famous actor in the world 
commit suicide the next day. I felt worthless my whole life there. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't touch the subject, the successes, the achievements, the conditional things they try to do. Just they don't relate to that. They, they are facades, we call them, facades mm -hmm. to cover up the truth about oneself. The, um, in schools, because I teach in a lot of schools and do teaching aid work, there's a lot of students who really rely on things like test grades to make them feel worth something, even though, you know, if, if they get in like a bad grade, they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm so crap at this. I'm not any good at this. And in terms of that, what sort of, I guess they've sort of conditioned themselves to think that the mark will give them the validation that they need and will give them the worth that they need. And so in those situations, why, why is that? Why is the idea of them needing a mark so important for them? Well, I think that's really interesting, right? Because you get the different kind of students here, right? You got Janice, who, who, whose parents said, and I just want to say what parents are saying this, but 99% of the time we're talking about parents are not aware that they're doing this. They're not aware that they're developing this. And, you know, very, very few parents in this world intentionally want to do harm to their children. So if you're Janice out there, this isn't about blaming your parents in any way, but it's just the way that it kind of develops. So, you know, for Janice's parents, there would have been an idea of there are very specific things that she can do to be better, to be more worthwhile. And she cannot attain those. She cannot achieve those, at least not at school. Or that Janice's parents just gave her no way to be worthwhile. Like there was nothing she could actually do to undo her worthlessness. It wasn't like you are worthless until you do, you have better grades. You are worthless until you clean the table. You are worthless until you dress prettier. You are worthless until you become a sporty person, not a, a music-y person. Um, it might be that parents just kind of go, there's really nothing about you that's really likable to us. There's nothing about you that's good enough. No way were you ever good enough, not in your sports, not in your studies, not nothing. And then you kind of have this lockdown where you just kind of go, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. I'll just step away completely. I'll just sulk. I'll just be within myself. I'll just feel suicidal. Just feel like there's no way out. Now, for some children who are at least kind of where they are able to meet their parents' requirements, the parents might go, oh, you know what? There's actually nothing interesting about you as a person. I don't kind of know. They don't say that, but that's kind of the, the way that it plays out in the relationship that they're not really interested in their kid. But as soon as their kid achieves something, they go, oh, hey, wow, that's amazing. What did you do there? Look at that. You put those blocks together. That's really cool. Well done. Hey, honey, did you know we have a clever kid? I didn't know we have such a clever kid. Come here. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. That's amazing. And then they disappear. And then the kid cries and does whatever else. So they fumble or they make mistakes or whatever else. Nothing is noticed. Nothing's seen. And then they put the blocks back together again. Oh, there's the blocks again. Man, that's what I like to see, my little engineer. You're my little engineer, <laughs> aren't you? Right? Yeah. Mm. Look at you, super engineer. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. Those kind of encouragements are actually kind of really good. But when they're the only encouragement you get, and in the absence of that, as soon as you cry, you're sent to your room, where it kind of really paints the picture, doesn't it? You're worthless if you're anything but an engineer. So now here's the kid, they're in school, and whenever they excel at mathematics, whenever they excel at physics, whenever they're excelling in science, they think, yeah, they got their shit together. Yeah, I got this. I know this. I'm good. I feel good within me. Something feels right. But of course, if they don't, 
well, then it all kind of falls apart because underlying all of that is this extreme sense of worthlessness. The yeah. worthlessness that they can cover up successfully by meeting the demands of their parents. And so they'll do more and more and try. And unless if they achieve, say, the A+, plus, they won't feel <laughs> worthy, which is... Mm. The A plus does not help them feel worthy. That's the that's the fantasy. That's the hope that if I get an A plus, then I'm worthy. But instead, what the mind does, it goes A plus. Yeah, okay, you don't have to be anxious right now. But what's next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got the A plus, but what's next? Wait. Oh, year twelve. What's next? Oh, uni. What's next? Oh, what's next? What's next? Okay, so I'm an engineer now. What's next? But I'm not the head engineer, am I? No. What's next? But I'm not the. I don't own my own engineering company, do I? What's next? So I don't have $10 million, do I? No, what's next? Mm. I don't have three kids yet, do I? I only have one kid. One kid isn't enough to be worthwhile, is it? you got to have three at least, right? Yeah, and it's just the trend of never enough. That idea that never you enough. said the, the money bit as well, because, yeah, it's not just, say, we're, we're using the example of school, but this conditional um, self-worth can be in the form of money or in the form of a job or some sort of reputation, some sort of job title that we've imagined to be amazing. But the time we get there, we're just going, yeah, that, that's uh, not as great as I thought it'd be. Yeah, well, what, what we do to compensate for our worthlessness or our conditional sense of self-worth, what we do to compensate for it will always be a compensation. It would never um, cure it. It will never fix the problem. I mean, I think a hundred years of psychological research show that it just doesn't. No one ever went, I was worthless until I became an actor and now I'm all good. I was worthless until I got that million dollars and now I'm all good within me. That just, it just, there is no such evidence. There's no. Someone might say I was poor and then I got rich when I got my money. That would be right. Someone might say I was not famous and then I became famous once I became an actor or, or I wasn't happy with my job, but now I get to do what I love. Uh, but no one ever became more worthwhile as a human being fundamentally by uh, anything other mm. than uh, the fact that they are. Yeah. And how can we start to rewrite that? Because that is such an ingrained thing from our attachment, you know, when we're kids, we already have that mentality. And so we'll just keep forming the habit and the skill of trying to dis, you know, reduce that distance between us and people. And how can we start, at least it's going to be difficult, but how can we start to get more unconditional self-worth? Look, I think that's, I think that's a fantastic question. And, and, and the thing is that the brain does the best it can to never let you see, feel, hear, experience in any way, anything but what you already know about you to be true from those early years of life. And I call this process a process of filtering. I'll give you an example. Person says, I feel worthless within me, uh, or sorry, I feel worthless and unlovable within me. No one could possibly love me. And then they get in a relationship with this guy who's security attached and super loving and caring. And every time he kisses her, cuddles her, it's close to her, is tender to her, says nice things to her, she dissociates. Dissociation means basically your brain kind of checks out. In one way or another, you're not really there or you can't really experience it. Like it's like, this isn't happening to me or you float above yourself or you kind of feel like you're not really you or 
So very ironically then, a person who wants to be loved cannot feel the love she's receiving from a man who's willing to love her because her brain does not want her to have any experiences that are different to her idea of lovability, unlovability. Brain wants her to continue to feel unlovable. So when she has experiences that are contradictory to that unlovability, her brain makes sure that she does not experience that. This process of filtering is what we are combating. Me, you, all of us, whatever wounds we've had, if they have not been addressed directly, we are all going through a filtering experience. Another example would be a guy goes up on stage and you know, I, one of my, my patients, a famous person, would go up on stage and say, this, there would be hundreds of thousands of people online, tens of thousands of people in the crowd cheering for him. And his eyes would find the person who did not. His brain would focus on that person who was not happy with his, his performance. Or, or we don't really know why they were unhappy, right? We, it's, it's one in the 10,000 people. We don't know why they were unhappy. But that's what he, where his brain goes. It does not want him to feel the love of 10,000 people in the crowd pumping away and dancing away. And his music doesn't want him to feel that. So we need to combat this filtering and the only real way to do that is to do that in a two-person process. You need somebody to go, hang on, I think you're filtering there. I think you didn't really hear what I said because I said, you're welcome, come sit down. And the first thing you said was, I don't really feel welcome in this room. What happened there? Oh, you said something about welcome or something? Like, I'm not welcome? No, 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 no. I said, you are welcome. Did you hear me say you are not welcome? Yeah. Does that tend to happen for you? Right? So we need to help them identify how their brain filters out all this good information, all this uh, beneficial information. Because mm -hmm. otherwise anyone would go, well, my parents were critical, but everyone else ever since has been really nice to me. So it can't be about me. It has to be my parents, right? No need for psychology anymore. No need for therapy. Yes. <laughs> the world is pure, right? Everyone can just kind of keep it contextual. My parents were like that. Everyone else has been nice to me since. I'm all good. But the brain doesn't do. Right. right. So that's one step. The first step is therapy. Hands down. You have to have therapy and you need to have attachment-based therapy. And, it, and I would recommend something like intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, ISTP is the therapy that I do. Other therapies that are available that may have some efficacy around that might be uh, schema therapy, uh, gestalt therapy, they say, uh, for some, for some, for borderline personality, DBT, that might be effective, I don't know. So um, those are kind of attachment-based therapies um, are, are the best. And I think if not, the therapies that are based on this idea that there's a core and, and we need to do something about the core. Cognitive therapy, of course, is extremely good therapy. Now, if it's not therapy, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> help. <laughs> therapy, what do you do? I think one of the first things that you can do, honestly, that people have said to me has been the most useful avenue for them to start learning is, is to start reading about attachment. Yeah, there's some really good literature out there about attachment. Um, there is a book by John Fredrickson uh, called The Lies We Tell Ourselves. 
Uh, it's a phenomenal book to start identifying these filters that we have um, that, and how the brain kind of lies to you and how you end up kind of lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book, a book called Daniel Hill's Affect Regulation Theory for those who are a little bit more brainy and like it a little bit more um, science-y. I think those are kind of two of the best books I've read. Of course, there's there's the book called um, The Handbook of Attachment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you're really thick into into that stuff would be really useful but i think learning about this area from each other and from other people um it, it's very useful a way to start kind of getting those ideas like wait a second okay maybe my brain does filter i know my brain does filter but maybe now at least i know my brain filters mm-hmm. and maybe there are kind of some things i can start thinking about because my partner does keep telling me hey you keep not hearing me when i say i love you so <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's like uh, identifying a trend, right? Being aware of it in the first place. Mm. That's right. And starting to identify trends can be can be the beginning. And then there's things like getting uh, getting in with uh, social groups. And that I actually just recently released a video about that. Actually, what you can do about mm. your attachment. Um, I think like getting getting connected uh, with different social groups, uh, getting to connected with healthy groups of people who are struggling with the same things. Uh, um, but ideally, there should be someone supervising those groups, mm-hmm. uh, like someone who, who does not identify with the same problem anymore. Uh, otherwise, it, it could just be more harmful. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to resolve this stuff with your family uh, unless your family has significantly changed. Unless mm-hmm. your family went and did therapy and realized themselves some of the stuff that they were doing and they're not doing that anymore. It might be useful to talk to them. Otherwise, try not to. Yeah, so that's a lot of resources for um, whoever's listening to, you know, go and access because there is always help. It's just a matter of finding that <laughs> for, for themselves. Yeah. And so now going from that idea of self, self-worth, now the idea of self-criticism, and we're going to compare that to self-compassion too. But first of all, I'm curious to know why, a lot of people are so self-critical as well. I I guess it links back to self-worth, but there must be some sort of benefit for being so self-critical. I think, I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. That's the key factor uh, that people who are self-critical will tell you that there's benefits to it. They will believe that their self-criticism was the thing that got them there the thing that helped them, the thing that made them thrive and made them strive and made them reach their goals. But there's actually very little to no evidence that self-criticism is the pathway that gets us to achieve. People who are self-critical and they do achieve, they actually end up just continuing being self-critical and still being self-hating and still being um, self-punitive. We simply uh, take on board that idea of persistent and chronic self-criticism um, as the way that we are treated. It's, it's, in other words, a shaming process. We shame ourselves the way that we've been shamed. And if we make mistakes when we're a child, we drop the milk, we try to pour milk. I mean, my son was trying to pour milk the, the other day. He pours the milk. Now there's milk everywhere. He goes, oh, that didn't work. And I hear him in the other room and I go, hey, what's up, buddy? What's happening here? He says, I tried to make milk. I tried to pour the milk and it didn't work. No, it didn't work. Should we try again? Yeah, let's try again. <laughs> and that's about all that needs to be said about that. Um, and that's what he's going to do uh, probably if I keep doing what I keep doing. Uh, mm-hmm. He's going to keep doing that for the rest of his life. When things don't work, he's going to go, doesn't work. Pause. Think. Try something else. <laughs> let's try again. 
That's about all you really need, right? You don't need the voice in between that said, you're stupid, you're an idiot, why did you try to begin with? You know, you always make mistakes like that. No one's ever going to love you. No one's ever going to believe in you. You're going to mess up your whole life. You're going to make the whole company go back. You're going to make people hate you. Everyone's going to notice how useless and worthless you are. You just don't need all that stuff in between. But people who have been treated that way, children who dropped the milk and mom and dad came out, see, oh, you stupid. That was just stupid. Why did you think that you could do that? Like, that's just silly. That's mm. super silly. Don't grab the milk again. Well, you know, then next time when they just spill the milk, they're going to go, that's silly. That's stupid. That's why did I think I could do that? Of course, I couldn't do that. They just repeat. So self-criticism mm. is a repeated, it is, is a repetition of shame when, when in, that, in that frame of mind. Mm. And in those situations, because when you were using that example, I started to think of, I have very strong opinions about punishment about uh so say punishment in schools i have very strong opinions about that and how it doesn't work because you've got things like detentions and suspensions you've got um all of these punitive measures to make sure that the students don't do it again but what you end up finding is that they will do it again um but now there's just shame involved in it so it's not actually attacking anything that the core of it because my philosophy, I guess, something I really believe in is if they've done something bad, it's because there is something wrong. So that there is a reason for their behavior. So if they were to spill that milk, well, that's a very benign thing. But if they were to bully another student, there is a core underlying belief that they have or something that's going wrong for them to do it. But then once someone criticizes them for it, They'll probably self-criticize themselves, but then not attack the actual underlying issue. What are your thoughts about that? <laughs> well, I think what you said there, I mean, you keep saying your beliefs, your beliefs. Uh, it's very encouraging to hear that your beliefs are completely consistent with every piece of science that's ever been released on the idea of punishment. We got to know that punishment, I mean, if you think about it, punishment has not helped with anything. Punishment does not reduce criminal criminal uh, crime. Punishment has not reduced uh, children from using drugs. Punishment has not reduced how many people uh, are abusive in schools. Punishment has not reduced bullying. Punishment doesn't do anything. Punishment is for the punisher. It's not for the punishee. Uh, punishment is that you feel better about yourself, that you feel like you, you've got to do something, that you got to punish somebody, you got to whip somebody, you got to lash somebody. Punishment in its most extreme forms, if we look at, for example, any culture that's had slavery, any any time where they've had slavery, punishment only worked to keep a person constantly afraid of the punisher, such that they, for example, were too afraid to do anything but, um, but it didn't actually even change what the punishers wanted to change, which was that core fundamental idea within the person that I, I, I don't want to be free. Mm -hmm. the, the moment slavery has been abolished in whatever countries it has, and people have <laughs> gone free and gone, yeah, I'm more, more than happy to be free now, except for some extremely severely traumatized people who were kind of more happy to, to be in this kind of Stockholm syndrome, if you will, um, happy to institute institutionalization and so on and so forth. And, and unless that's what we're trying to achieve with punishment, that we're trying to um, scare people by the by their lives from from doing anything wrong, and we punish them accordingly, like whip them, uh, shoot them, and even then it's very ineffective. 
Mm-hmm. What are we trying to do? We're just putting the heart that we have inside us into them. We're just uh, finding a recourse, a way mm-hmm. uh, to say, well, I did something. You know, you hit somebody at school and here's um, something. There must be a consequence. Um, But of course, those consequences are already natural. And rather than looking at the natural consequences that happens for a person and helping them understand that when you bully, um, that voice within you that says that you're already worthless, that's the one thing that got you to bully to begin with. And that's feeding off of every negative behavior that you do. It just kind of feeds off of that. And that perpetuates that cycle for you. And of course, after you bully, you then feel shame within you. And that's your consequence. And so instead, what we can do is help you look at that sense of worthlessness that you have within you. I mean, if a kid is bullying somebody in school, send them to therapy. Mm-hmm. It's simple. It's simple. It's, been, it's, it's kind of, it's in science. It's been said. So a child bullies someone in school, you're a teacher. The first thing you do, you talk to the parents about referring a child to therapy. That's as simple as it goes. Done. In fact, if you're really good at your job, you refer the entire family to therapy. <laughs> Whether they or not, they'll accept it. <laughs> yeah. The mom and dad, and you forget the kid for a while. Ideally, the mm-hmm. first thing you think you do, child is being a bully. I'm going to send their mom and dad to therapy if I can. I'm going to refer to therapy. I mean, there just needs to be a system where we just accept that those things are the truth. Like, yeah. I mean, people can refuse it. They can refuse to go. But we need mm-hmm. to do what's right. Yeah. The teacher who sees the child of bullies needs to know it's not the child's fault. Something's going on with their parents, with their caregivers. Something's going on in the household. We need to refer those parents to therapy. Mm-hmm. What I hear from what you're explaining is treating them with compassion. So treating them with um, more so a curiosity as opposed to a judgment to just go, okay, well, this kid did bully. Um, there must be an underlying issue. We're going to be compassionate towards you, which is so different from what I guess the bully would expect is compassion instead of a punitive thing. Um, And with that idea of self-compassion now, well, compassion, but moving it into self-compassion, how can the person themselves with the resources that they have, you know, they already feel sort of self-worthless. It's going to be more difficult, but what are some ways that we can become more self-compassionate too. Look, there, there's kind of self-compassion-based therapy and, and there are kind of strategies. You know, you can Google the five ways to be more compassionate towards yourself and things like that. I don't like to get involved in that stuff too much. I, I, I'm just saying it doesn't work. It's useless. It's worthless. It's, it's, it's just instead of covering up your worthlessness with abuse and self-attack, self-criticism, it becomes kind of a covering it up with compassion. There's actually very little to no real hardcore evidence that people who um, are I, I, uh, who are afraid of self-compassion can be self-compassionate. So this is what I mean. I, I released an article, actually. It's a published article that I, uh, in the journal, uh, I forget. Anyway, on, on this idea of fear of self-compassion. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. With me, so people who believe themselves worthless will fear self compassion. Remember how the brain filters out yeah. when it doesn't want to know, hmm. so it will kind of filter out the other people's love, for example, other people's affection or care or compliments or something like that. It will also filter out, it will be afraid of you, will get an anxious response to trying to be self compassionate. And of course, what we did with that. What we did with that, and Paul Gilbert, one of the kind of most famous self-compassion-based uh, uh, authors in the world, um, kind of first mentioned this idea of fear of self-compassion because they noticed that with a huge number of their patients who they were trying to do self-compassion-based therapy with, 
their patients weren't responding. They were getting an anxious response when they were being told to be compassionate to themselves. So we suggest that, that perhaps the way to deal with that is, again, to deal with the attachment. So we took a huge group of people, 60 plus people, and we helped them with their attachment. And what we found is that after their attachment issues were resolved or improved or attachment issues were decreased, there was an increase in susceptibility to being more self-compassionate. So it again suggests that even self-compassion-based strategies require the fundamental basis of a, of a um, awareness and of regulation of some form of knowing that there is something going on within that is worthlessness or something like that and not and being aware that your brain is trying to filter everything away from that is going to get anxious if you try to defeat that purpose or that idea within you and and almost like you need to be taking steps towards security in your attachment already before self-compassion exercises actually have a function and work at all. So I hope you're enjoying so far. Now on to the last part of the episode about the true meaning of self-care and something that Sia is very ready to rant about. I'm, I'm going to start with a scenario. So Angus is getting more and more stressed in school. He worries about assignments that are due and his grades just don't seem to be improving. And it happens no matter how hard he's studying and he's studying quite a bit. So he, he learnt about self-care a while back and this was in one of the classes, the extra classes where someone comes in and they talked about self-care and they were asked to write a list of self-care uh, activities that they could do. So he said uh, he wrote down things like video games, he wrote down things like sleeping, uh, like running, all of that. And so already I, I saw that. <laughs> I saw that. Ugh. <laughs> Uh, and so obviously you have a lot of thoughts about self-care and what psychological self-care actually is. So I'll let, I'll pass no, no, the mic on to you. No, no, no. That, that is the question. Like, you know, you have a lot of thoughts. And so what is, what issues do you have with this scenario I've just painted for you? I have so many issues. <laughs> 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 problems with... <coughs> Look, modern day, Western, chewed up, jazzed up self-care is not self-care. It's just another go and buy products. Go to your next convenience store, buy this facial cream. It's going to make you feel better about your husband being abusive to you. Go to this store, buy this facial cream. It's going to make you feel better about your wife being abusive to you, about your partner being aggressive to you. You know what? Play some video games. It's going to make you feel better about your dad who's aggressive to you. Play some video games. It's going to make you feel better about your mom who's always criticizing you. Go to ballet and do some dancing. It's going to make you feel a lot better about your mom who's always trying to criticize you, always trying to be a bit you up about this, or never pays attention to you, or your dad who's always away. He's always someday, someday going to come back. Like, it's not self-care. I don't know, like, to the point where I would say, I stop some people from going to the gym. Hmm. I say to some people, don't go to the gym anymore, right? Why? If gym is equivalent to self-care, why would I say to people, 
don't go to the gym. I'm trying to think about that. Yeah. Why? <laughs> because you all assume everyone who's kind of selling the product, gym as a product, assumes that 100 people doing the same thing feel the same way. My patients go to the gym and they stand in front of the mirror and they say things like, you're scum, you're shit, you're fat. Look, everyone else is so skinny. Look how beautiful they are. Look how ugly you are. Comes out of the gym and he's more suicidal than ever. Can I say to that person, gym is self-care? No. I'm sending him right down a path of suicidality. You know, this person comes to me and five therapists before him have said, you need to go to the gym. None of them identifying this guy doesn't go to the gym and do what you believe you're supposed to do at the gym. He goes to the gym, he lifts the weights, but the entire time he's constantly hurting himself from the inside. So the actions we take, the behaviors we engage in externally, the activities we engage in are not self-care. One child plays video games and it's harmful to them and they should stop until we can psychologically deal with the issues that are within, and then they can play video games. One child can play video games and have fun and not beat themselves up and not be horrible and horrific to themselves while they're doing that. They can go ahead and play video. Activities are not self-care. So what is self-care then? Self-care is what is within. It's how you care about you. Are you being caring towards yourself? Compassion, self-compassion is a component of that. I developed a survey with 500 questions. It was actually just before I kind of finished my job at the university. I developed a questionnaire where we looked at behavioral, cognitive, and emotional ways of being caring to oneself. Compassion was one. Other things was things like standing up for yourself, assertion, um, setting boundaries within oneself being allowed to feel what you feel being okay with that uh, not being judgmental so kind of bit of kind of stuff that comes from mindfulness stuff that comes from compassion stuff that comes from psychodynamic therapy stuff that comes from cognitive therapy stuff that comes from behavioral therapy we kind of mashed it all together self-care is the biggest undiscovered unexamined question in all of psychology we all think we know what it is. We don't. And we haven't talked about it enough. And we haven't explored it enough. And it is not go take a shower, go play some games, go to the gym, go have a walk, watch some Netflix, do your favorite hobby. These things are not self-care. What happens within is what determines self-care. What, how you are being treated by you. How your, uh, your mind allows you, the relationship between you and yourself is self-care. When that is a good relationship, when that is a caring relationship, that is self-care. Right. So in terms of then Angus's situation where, so he's more stressed and stressed about school. He feels like he's, you know, becoming more overwhelmed with the study, uh, with yeah. studies and everything. So his action which is not self-care uh is something like video games or running then for angus's situation what would be his true psychological self-care then 
So the true self love your self care rather than sitting there playing video games, tapping your foot, going, "Oh shit, I should be doing studies. What am I doing? This is oh, I'm so stressed. I should actually I'm failing my studies." Which of course is just another way of making them even more kind of strung up and worried. Mm. The true action of self care for Angus would be there to go. All right, why do I need have this sense that I need to succeed so much at school? Why do I attach? myself my view my worth my existence as a human being to my success in school school is not a thing everyone will get a's in there's a reason why there's something called an a not everyone is school smart not everyone is study smart not everyone will get those a's can we be worthy and loved and cared for and just as important in this world if we are non a non grade a students non grade b students if we fail students if we fail does that mean we are less worthy somehow what he needs to do is he needs therapy he needs to sit down with somebody to go look you're not achieving as well as you can let's look at why that is let's look at there's something within you that that doesn't want you to succeed Let's look to see if there's something that sabotages your successes. Let's look to see if there's something that gets in the way of you succeeding. Or in addition to that, let's see if there's something that says it's your attribution of success that's wrong. I mean, what grades does he get? Passes? A past student is a fantastic student. You're really good if you pass school, right? There's no difference between you and the rest of the students in terms of worth, value, love, how happy you can be in this life, how well, how much you can achieve, what you can get from this life. There is no difference. There's no evidence whatsoever that grades in school equates to happiness, success, flourishing, actualization in life. There just isn't. And I wish there could be because it would be easy because we could just get kids' grades up and we could guarantee their happiness. In life. But that's not the case. Yeah. So Angus needs to start looking within himself to go what's going on for me what if I, maybe i'm not good at grades maybe i should just be happy with the grades i have maybe that's all i need why do i even, maybe actually what i want is to be something else maybe i want to be a plumber maybe i want to be a cleaner maybe i want to work at coals maybe i want to be a musician maybe i want to be an actor maybe i want to be a sports person maybe i want to be a porn star i don't care there's no difference for me in the value or worth or love these all these people exist in society they all have equal worth of value and I shock people by saying a porn star is just as much worthy to me as a doctor. I do not see a doctor walking down the street having more worth than a person who is anything else. I don't care. Porn star, sex worker, psychologist, cleaner, janitor, equal worth, all of them. Tired of having to explain to people that you're, a nurse is just as mu has much worth as a human being as a doctor. <laughs> yeah, you you had a really great video about that about self worth about how we can how can we attribute say like a job title to someone and say that they have more worth. Um, but you definitely go more into detail about that, which again people can look into. But um, that. You know, I've been transported and I'm sure the listeners have been transported to a <laughs> new dimension, you know, just listening to everything that you're explaining because a lot of these concepts, we don't, we're not too aware of them. I think we're it just, you know, something like self-worth, we sort of just go through life attributing different things to complement our self-worth, I guess, or make us feel better. 
but uh, actually just being aware is the first step. First step, first you need to become aware of what's going on inside. Then you need to start being able to reflect on what actually goes on inside. Yeah. And once you have those fundamental bases of self-awareness and self-reflection, off the basis of that, you can achieve amazing things within yourself. Self-care is a process of how you are with yourself, the relationship between you and yourself. That's what care is. When anyone says, go do this or go do that, just boop, just go, don't, just don't listen. It, it, it's not true. Start looking at your relationship with yourself. That's, that's the place. That's the one thing. That's what I help my patients with. That's what my videos are all about. The relationship between you and you and how the relationship between you and you affects the relationship between you and other people. And, and that's where it's all at. Not, there is no, there's, there, people who take a bath at the end of the night don't feel better than people who don't. You go on. It's archaic. It's ridiculous. It's mm -hmm. absolutely toxic. And it's very harmful to people who are suffering to tell them, just take a bath and you'll feel better. Just go to the gym and you'll feel better. Just take a walk. I'm telling you, I'm abused from within myself and outside of myself. You tell me, take a walk. I mean, that's not to me it, it is abuse. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sia, for jumping on. We cut a lot of, like, covered so many topics today, but it's really great that, you know, we can talk about these topics. And uh, where, can, where can listeners find you? So you can find me on uh, YouTube. Just write Dr. Sia on YouTube. So that's the Dr. D-R-S-I-A on YouTube. And that's where I am. And that's where I'm ranting. And that's where I'm creating videos. And we have a small community uh, at the moment. And, and, you know, so I uh, have time to answer questions and, and make videos according to request. And I mean, that's where you found me yourself and, and now we're connected. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and th that would be the best place to find me uh, online. And of course, if you want to know more about my practice, if you want to see me as a therapist, you, you can just Google me. I, uh, Dr. Sia, again, you probably write Dr. Sia, psychologist. Uh, and um, I work uh, at a clinic called MindHack here in Australia. Um, but also, of course, if you're abroad and many of my patients are from America or from Canada or from Europe and we do online sessions then so we just kind of have to find the time that works and we can do online sessions via Zoom or something like that as well. Okay. Um, so that's kind of how you find me.